Welcome back to another episode from the Summer Binge Series. I'm Sam, and I'll be walking you through a few of Claire's diary entries. If you've just popped in to see what's going on, be sure to listen to the first of this series, where we explain everything and give you a sense of what's going on. Right now, let's get into Claire's diary. But first, her note. And Claire says, nieces, aunts, and friends. If I were to play a word association game with you, I'll bet you would guess my answers would frequently relate to my cool aunt, Laurent. And if the word in question is books, then she would definitely be one of my first word associations. I do think of her when I see a display of beautiful leather-bound books where the edges of the pages are gold. You know what I mean. But first and mostly... I think of my mother because she is the one who taught me that I could travel anywhere in place or time by opening a book and turning a page. And she proved it to me every night at my bedtime when she would read to me anything I chose from my night-night bookshelf. And to this day, when I settle in for the night with a good read, I feel the same sense of adventure and calm that I had when she started to read those stories to me. What a beautiful memory I get to keep and relive. Every night, and until we meet again, Claire. Okay, Claire. Let's see what she has to say in her diary. She's entitled this diary entry as the ultimate passport. Claire says, Laurent asked me if I had something to read on the plane. Turning away, her hand went directly to an unmarked spine. She slipped the book out without looking and handed it to me, saying, This is so interesting, because although it is the biography of a woman who lived nearly a century ago, it is still a very relevant one. I found it so compelling that I've read it more than once. I'll be interested to hear your opinion when you return it. And Claire says, this was something like a landmark moment because Laurent did not normally loan her books out. I hesitated taking it from her hand and then thought better of it. Loaning the book to me was her decision, not mine to overturn. Of course, this was a privilege and a responsibility in terms of acceptance. Reading, taking care, and importantly, returning it to her. Of far greater significance to me was that this was so much more than any book or story. It was an invitation to think with her. And the next section is entitled, The Backstory Had Something to Do with Laurent. Claire writes, I had known the backstory of why Laurent did not loan out her books since I was about six or maybe seven years old. In what was then a rite of passage, I had earned the status of holding a library card in my own name because I was able to sign my name in cursive. The day my mother took me to sign up for the card was special and to me a very big deal indeed. My anticipation grew as the wait stretched over a few weeks. I practiced my signature and even made a special wallet to hold my new card. Before the card was presented to me, my mother sat me down on a bench 
where she told me a story about the value of books. It was about the serious responsibility of borrowing books. The very short version of this story was that Laurent had once loaned a book to a friend who never bothered to return it to her. She never spoke to that former friend again. My eyes widened and my heart pounded as she emphasized details of the story and ending it, she wrapped up with a wish. And this is Claire's mother saying to her, my hope is that you will always respect books, their authors and owners, borrowed or not. I can still recall almost everything about the night I got my first library card because of my mother's story. In the next section, Claire writes, On the couch with a classic movie. And she continues, Years later, while I was held captive on the couch by the flu, unable to do a thing, I couldn't even read. And at my mother's suggestion, I tuned in to a classic movie channel on the television. I was thrilled to find Out of Africa because I'd never seen it and I knew it would take and keep my attention for at least a few hours. It did more than that, mostly because of one early scene. In it, Meryl Streep's character has recently arrived in Africa and is engaged in conversation with a new acquaintance about the collection of books surrounding them. Selecting one from a shelf, she inquires as to whether the owner of the books loans them out. The acquaintance responded, Well, he used to, until a friend borrowed one and never returned it. Streep retorts that, Well, he wouldn't lose a friend over a book, would he? And the acquaintance replied, No, he wouldn't, but his former friend did. Claire writes, I sat upright. That poignant moment in the movie was especially remarkable because this was my mother's story about Laurent loaning a book to a friend, only to lose both. The veracity of my mother's version is not the point. Who am I to question her motives? Besides, I wasn't at all disappointed by the coincidence. Instead, I was deeply touched and, frankly, amazed because she'd created my lesson in that moment and her story is the better version anyway. One day, I hope to tell the story exactly as it was told to me on that bench the night I got my library card. Well, Claire moves along to the next diary entry entitled The Things You Love. But first, there's a note. (laughs) And she says, nieces, aunts, and friends, I'm sure everyone knows the feeling. The moment you realize that you've lost something, you've left it behind and are panicked trying to remember the last place you remember having this thing, whatever it is. Meaningless things, a cheap pen, Things lacking meaning are easily replaced and do not warrant a second thought or a search. I grew tired of replacing cheap utilitarian things in my daily experience. And now I try to replace them with more intent, paying attention to design and to function. 
Everything should give you pleasure. Of course, it was Laurent who prompted me to stop replacing junk with junk. My first attempt was with sunglasses. Normally, I would use or buy anything because I knew they wouldn't be with me for long. Then I spent the time and a bit more money to find a better pair. Design, function, everything. I keep them in a case and still appreciate them every time it's sunny. I think ultimately I've probably spent less on a more expensive pair because I'm not replacing them every few months. They've become a part of me now, too. And we'll talk again soon, Claire. So now let's open up the diary to the next entry entitled The Things You Love. The subtitle here is It's So Much More Than an Umbrella. Claire starts off with a quote. You should only acquire things that bring you real pleasure, a pleasure, a joy to own. Laurent once told me that you know when you really love a possession, a thing, because you're willing to protect it, so much so that if you left it behind in a restaurant or wherever, you would immediately turn around to search, to retrieve it. And to make her point, Laurent recounted the story of retracing her footsteps one day in Rams, looking for her umbrella. It was a typical autumn day that began with a drizzle and later cleared up to a deep blue sky and a steady northwesterly wind. A longer-than-usual lunch at the Café du Palais, the reappearance of the sun allowed her memory to cast aside her umbrella's presence hanging on the back of her chair. Leaving the café, she walked for about ten minutes, made a few stops along the way, and boarded the tram near the cathedral. That is when she noticed another woman carrying an umbrella and realized she was empty-handed. The next section is titled, The Place or Process of Acquisition Can Make a Common Thing Special. People in cities like Reims know that a left-behind possession will likely be held for its owner. Their somewhat laid-back response to something left behind is not panic but more of an inconvenience. Many will wait until the next day to retrace their path, knowing whatever they left behind would likely be held for them. Laurent, ever the Parisian, immediately retraced her footsteps on the day she lost her umbrella because this umbrella was worth the time and the effort, the immediacy of it. Made in England, it was of a quality intended to be inherited, elegant in its exceptional length and slimness when wrapped with a handle of burled walnut. The shell was made of silk, jet black silk. It was an amazing sight to see when the tightly wrapped shell was unfurled because it fully protected two people from the rain. Once opened and locked in place, the black silk stretched so tightly that raindrops bounced and drummed off the tips. The end cap on the burl handle was sterling, engraved with an equally elegant LP. 
There is surely an acquisition story about this, a seemingly ordinary thing that is likely as precious to her as the umbrella itself. It was worth looking for. Reversing course, Laurent retraced her footsteps, commiserating with the shopkeepers who offered to keep a watch for the umbrella just in case. She laughs, recounting the search, as though the umbrella was some sort of escapee that shopkeepers promised to keep a watch for. Unsurprisingly, it was at the very end of the search, quietly hanging on the same chair where she last placed it. Reunited, she headed back to the tram, following the same path again. With a smile and a tap of the umbrella handle on the same shop windows she visited twice, all smiles and search warrants canceled with an acknowledging wave back at her. There are very decent people in big cities too, even and sometimes especially in New York City, where my cab driver followed me for three long blocks as I window shopped, honking because I'd left my umbrella on the car seat. He finally caught my eye by waving the umbrella out of the window of his cab, yelling, Hey, lady, you're going to need this. You forgot your umbrella. This was one of those times when it is someone else who understands and makes the effort to reunite. And that wraps up this diary entry. Okay, the next diary entry is titled The Japanese Matchmaker. And before we open the diary, of course, there's a note. (laughs) where Claire says nieces, aunts, and friends. As you know, I travel quite a bit. And while I've had a lifelong dream of traveling in Japan, especially Kyoto, I haven't been there just yet, but I will, and soon. But for now, whenever I'm in San Francisco, I satiate this dream by roaming through Japantown, a personal escape I allow myself almost every time I'm there. I think I started this mini tradition of mine on only my second visit to the city, and I've kept true to it ever since. These shops are treasures of culture, antique objects, and pathways into the past. I realize that roaming these narrow streets is not representative of Kyoto by any stretch of anyone's imagination. However, there is so much authenticity there with the shopkeepers and their stocks. It's not difficult to get lost in these few blocks. I spend so much time in any one shop that when I'm about to leave, I can't seem to remember from which direction I came. And I enjoy the challenge of finding my way without any maps, if you know what I mean. And we'll talk again soon, Claire. A footnote here. That's Claire's reference to her senses that cool aunts, they seem to always know the way and don't necessarily need maps. So that's her reference there. Anyway, into the diary we go for the next entry of Claire's. And this is the Japanese matchmaker, My New Pearls. Claire writes, a doorway into Kyoto. On this particular occasion, I made a deliberate effort to lose my way, making unplanned turns, or by entering a different shop I've never visited. Quite dark, 
It was packed to the ceiling, but with an extreme order, probably understood only by the proprietor. Surprised by her appearance from behind a stack of very small wooden tables, I was startled and thrilled by her presence. This woman was stunning, an elegant woman who could be an opera diva. She was wearing a full-length kimono and intricate obi belt. She carried a tiny tray with two steaming cups of tea. We sat together for nearly an hour, and I learned that she viewed her shop as a collection of her lifetime. Although it seemed devoted to antiques and small wood furniture, I had a feeling there were unexpected treasures too. And she goes on in the next section to subtitle it Matchmaking. Claire writes, And then she offered to find me something special. With her back turned to me, she lighted two Hinoki incense batons, and turning back, she asked me if I was interested in pearls. Claire says, My heart nearly stopped. I found it difficult to swallow my sip of tea. Madame Asai was surveying a three-foot-high stack of unmarked, shallow wood boxes. These were something between a box and a tray, only about two inches deep, and they were highly polished, too. She selected one midway down the tall stack. Declining my assistance, she pulled the box with a snap of her wrist, and the remaining boxes dropped into place as if they were on a rail. Perfect order. Finally seated again, she opened the box by sliding a front panel aside and then released the top by pressing on the front edge. Inside, there were eight red silk boxes, exactly like my Gump's pearl box, but clearly much older. I thought this had to be the original source of what Gumps had reproduced. Long silk twisted cords with tassel ends were loosely tied around each small box. The boxes themselves were treasures, never mind the contents. Suddenly, Claire says, I was awash with disappointment as I realized this was probably going to be way outside of my, she puts in air quotes, financial range of possibilities, as my mother would say. Reading my thoughts, Madame Asai looked at me directly and told me not to worry. We will find a way. I went along with her premise more because I was enjoying her presence and company. Insisting on placing every strand over my head, she settled on a long strand without a clasp that could also be doubled. The next section is a trust match made in Japantown. I did attempt to refuse, but this was not to be. Madame Asai insisted that these were the pearls for me, declaring that she was more of a matchmaker than a shopkeeper. The price was more than double of what I could pay. No matter, she waved off my refusal, saying she would accept payments because she had found a home for these pearls. I left wearing the pearls, and for two years thereafter, 
I sent her anywhere from three to six new $20 bills in a plain envelope on the first of the month. At the end of the second year, I received a brown paper-wrapped box from Madame Asai's shop address. Inside was one of those corded silk boxes with eight Inoki incense sticks and a large piece of white rice paper with the Japanese characters translated to thank you. They were brushed by hand in a deep blue ink. And Claire says parenthetically, I think it might have been an azure blue, like the ink she found with Brigitte, and vocalized its Osorairimazu. The next section is entitled, How Should I Say Thank You? There are more than a few ways to express thank you in Japanese, varying in degree of politeness and social setting. Here, Madame Asai used the polite version preferred for business clients. The red ink circular stamp with the shop logo made it all official. After some research, I replied with Osorairimasu, which is also used as an expression of thank you that offers appreciation for someone having gone out of their way for you. It's a concise expression which I have not easily matched in English, giving me a way to express my feelings exactly and appropriately. Although the expressions are the same, the context changes the implication. Was the value in the pearls, the box, or was it the exchange? Yes to all. Her note lives in the box with the pearls when I'm not wearing them. And that wraps up this series of diary entries. I'm Sam, and I'll see you again when I'm back at the mic. <laughs>